0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We pray that you will be with us with your presence and spirit, that our minds will be enlightened and we'll know you more fully. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number three in our quarterly Jesus Wept, the Bible and Human Emotions. And the lesson title this week is entitled, Stress. Stress. The memory verse. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Uh, I'm sure we've all heard that passage before. How many have prayed that prayer? (laughs) Anybody besides me? I have. Yeah, sure. Question, what is stress? Fear. Fear can be stress. Uh, the, The first paragraph in our lesson says, Stress touches everyone. Demands at work, family crisis, guilt, uncertainty about the future, dissatisfaction with the past, these are all hard enough. All this, along with the general events of life, can put enough pressure on people that it affects their physical and mental health. Researchers Thomas Holmes and Richard Ray uh, developed the Social Readjustment Rating Scale, which lists life events which correspond with corresponding stress values for each. The death of a spouse is 100. Personal injury or illness, 53. Change in residence, 20. Uh, a person accumulating 200 or more points at any given time runs a 50% chance of becoming ill. Someone accruing 300 or more points will reach a point of crisis. Moderate amounts of stress are necessary to increase performance, but beyond a point, stress becomes a health hazard. Thoughts? Any questions? Yes. And yeah, that sounds like if you're a Christian, you're going to suffer the same as if you are not because of the points. Yeah. Is that true? Uh, not necessarily, but yes, we, we are, we're in the world, uh, but we're not of it. So we can have, and I think as we go through, we're going to discover we can have some things that make us more resilient, that make us less vulnerable to the stressors of life, but yet we still face the same stressors. So do we, you know, the Bible may talk about the armor of Christ, when the fiery darts come, the stressors of life come. Do we have armor that of a spiritual nature, of a mental, psychological nature that makes us more resilient? Um, well, let's let's explore and see if we do. Should we? Maybe, we well, should we? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think the death of a spouse, if you're a Christian and you have hope of uh, resurrection, then you have a different amount of stress than if you used to believe that it's, that's it. So, yes, and there's no question. I have patients who've lost loved ones. Now, if you have hope of resurrection, does that still mean there's no stress in dealing with the death of a loved one? Still stress. Yeah, still stress. Absolutely, because there's lots of adjustment to do. Yeah. There's fear involved. Fear involved, she says. Selfishness. What will happen to me? What will happen to me? There's physiological stress, though, um, can cause improvement. So if you stress, put stress on bones or muscles, they actually will improve. So stressors aren't by themselves negative, necessarily. <laughs> Thank you, Kathy. Excellent point. And my next, my, my next question, are stressors only negative things? Or can positive things, and there's a place, for instance, you're talking physical stress, exercising muscle with weight and so forth is a stress that, that causes a breakdown on the muscle, and then the rebuilding causes it to rebuild a little bit stronger than it was before. So this is how we build our strength by stressing or exercising um, ourselves. But we can over-exercise to the point that it becomes damaging, right? So if it's too much, and so how about mental stress? Well, studying is a form of mental stress, isn't it? We're taxing ourselves to push ourselves beyond our current uh, uh, level. When you build a bridge, it has to be able to withstand stress. Yes, and we think about planning a wedding. Can planning a wedding be stressful? (laughs) Seeing your physician is stressful. Blood pressure goes up. Pardon? Seeing a physician. Take a blood pressure test. Seeing your physician. For some people, it sure does. No (laughs) question about it. Yeah, that's right. Can performing at a concert, uh, you're a concert performer, can that be stressful? Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. First day on a new job that you've been looking forward to, applied for, got hired for, first day be stressful. Mm -hmm. So positive things can also be stressful. So the question that I want us to explore here, and and maybe we'll do it through a case study, is how do we apply the invitation of Christ, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest, in a real life situation. And as I present this situation to you, I want you to think, what might you experience if you were the parent in the situation? What might you experience if you were the child in this situation? How might you apply Christ's invitation to come to him if you're in this situation? Jenny was out of control. Rage outbursts, anger outbursts, skipping school, steady stream of, a steady stream of foul language started when she was 13. Her mother and stepfather tried various forms of discipline, grounding, loss of cell phone and iPod, extra chores, but she only got worse. At 14, she began dressing in black, wearing black nail polish, and sneaking away from school to smoke. Her parents took her to counselors and psychiatrists, and she was placed on several medications. By 15, she was deliberately cutting herself when stressed and binging and purging on an almost daily basis. She complained of feeling fat despite weighing only 100 pounds at 5 feet 4 inches tall. She reported anxiety, emptiness, moodiness, irritability. Um, She felt overwhelmed at the slightest stressor. She would either binge and purge or would cut herself when stressed in order to relieve the tension. And she was out of control and was getting worse fast. Jenny was was beautiful with uh, dark hair and brilliant green eyes, sparkled kind of a little golden hue, but radiated a very deep, almost primal pain. She mostly avoided direct eye contact with me, and hang, hanging her head, uh, holding her arms around her shins, pulling her sh- knees up to her chest. She was frightened when I met her, but not of me, but from the emotional storm raging inside her. She was terrified that she could not be helped. She was worried she would never find peace. She complained of chronic feelings of worthlessness. Do you think Jenny's parents were stressed? Yeah. Was Jenny stressed? Yes. What would happen in this situation if they came to see you and you quoted them our memory verse? Come unto me, all ye labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How do we apply? Now, the Christ invitation is true for them. Isn't it true for them? But what does it look like? But what does it look like? Yes, <laughs> what does it look like? How do we apply that? What does it mean to come to Jesus with our, with our stressors, with our labors, with our burdens? What could Jenny do in this situation to actually come to Jesus and experience his peace? Have you, any of you ever felt worthless or empty or no good or struggled with low self-esteem or lack of confidence or felt unloved or like no one cares, like Jenny felt? And I'm going to tell you a couple of truths that I told Jenny. Number one, you're not alone. And number two, feelings can lie. Very important to recognize feelings lie. James chapter 1 tells us no one should say God tempts. God doesn't tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires or feelings. And John 8.32 tells us the truth will set you free. See, we have power over what we believe. You guys can change your beliefs, right? You have power over what you believe. But what you believe has power over you. We can hypnotize ourselves. I want you to think that through. We have power over what we believe, but what we choose to believe will hold power over us. Mm -hmm. Jenny had been running from a faceless, formless, shadowy, internal tormentor that haunted her constantly. She didn't know from where her persecutor had come, but she couldn't remember a day free from its taunting. She heard the brutal thoughts echoing in her mind, You're fat. You're gross. You're ugly. You're worthless. Nobody could love you. You're, all, you're always messed up. You're bad. You're disgusting. Constantly echoing in her mind. No matter what she did, she just couldn't make the thought stop. So she wanted to die, believing that's all she deserved. She thought suicide was her only escape. What would you say to Jenny? How do we apply Christ's promises to her? It was hard for Jenny to talk, but eventually she told me the source of her pain. Jenny was three when her father walked out. One day he just left home and never returned. He divorced her mom and she had not seen him since. Jenny began to cry as she recounted how she missed him. She told me that she remembered her father, remembered she loved to ride on his shoulders and loved to be held in his arms. And she reluctantly, hesitantly, She told me she knew why her father left. Because I was bad. Because I was bad. If I'd been a better girl, my daddy wouldn't have left home. It's my fault. What did Jenny believe? A lie. See, we have power over what we believe, but what we believe has power over us. This was it, the core, the pernicious root that had been poisoning her mind, and this lie had to be removed. So what does it mean to come to Jesus? What does it mean to apply our memory verse, promise? Does it mean that we come to know him? Does it mean we come to appreciate his methods and principles and begin applying those principles to our life? What are, what are some of Satan's weapons? He's the father of lies. lies. And what do we receive when we come to Jesus that, that enables us to, to destroy those weapons of Satan? The truth. Truth. Now I'm going to tell you, because I know some of you have been hurt as well, what I told Jenny, that we cannot change history. We can't go back and change anything that's happened in the past. History is history. We can't change it. But we can reevaluate and change the conclusions we've drawn about history and replace distorted conclusions with more honest and truth-based ones. Jesus said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings forth evil out of the evil stored up in him. What does this mean? Is it true, first off? Do you believe that's true? Mm -hmm. What does it mean? What did Jenny believe about her daddy leaving? That it was her fault, that she was bad. Yes. How, How did Jenny file that away? As if she's defective. There's something wrong with her. I want you to imagine you look out in the parking lot and there's a 40-year-old man cursing at a five-year-old little girl. He's calling her every foul name you've ever heard. As you look out and watch that, do you think, oh, what a horrible little girl. Is that what you think? No. no you think, hey, that man's got problems. That man has got problems. What does the, Who do we learn about from his behavior? Do we learn about the character of the little girl or the character of the man? The of the man. What's the little girl walk away feeling like? Oh, is, is she worthless? Yep. Is she horrible? Is she no good? No. This is what happens, especially, it happens to all of us, even as adults, we still fall into this trap. But unavoidably, children always fall into this trap. When children are mistreated, they always internalize it as something is wrong with them. So, first thing Jenny had to do is she had to reevaluate what it meant. What it meant. She had done what all children do and that is she had taken and blamed herself for the shortcomings of her father. In the aftermath of her father leaving, Jenny felt abandoned, alone, empty, and rejected. At age three, her mind struggled to make sense of her father's departure. If I'd been a good girl, if I'd picked up my toys, daddy wouldn't have left. Her deep feelings of hurt and rejection, having been turned back on herself, grew into a very loathsome self-image. She despised herself, she hated herself, she thought everyone else did as well. I mean, after all, She drove her daddy away. Who could like her? The echoes of her disapproval, her own disapproval, her own castigation, her own constant self-criticism were what was oppressing her. That mysterious tormentor turned out to be her own hurt feelings and distorted self-image. And as she grew older, it actually only got worse. Her mind filtered reality. When someone would compliment her or commend her or show her appreciation, she would discount it the affirmation in her mind and say, oh, if they really knew me, they wouldn't say that. Mm -hmm. If they really knew what I was like, they wouldn't want to be around me either. But whenever someone was critical, cruel, unkind, she held on to those experiences as proof that she was bad and replayed them like a video player over and over again in her mind. No matter where she went or what she did, she never got away from the tormentor because the tormentor lived within she feared that letting people get too close or fear that they would see the horrible person that she was on the inside, the way she saw herself, and therefore reject her. So she acted out, instigated conflicts, criticized, disobeyed, hostile. Whenever, whenever anyone tried to get close, was kind, if it got too close, she would act out to push them away. And this was what was happening, why all this rebellion and stuff going on. Jenny reported that um, in the middle of a binge, she would feel a sense of relief while she was binging, feeling of comfort and emotional soothing. But almost immediately after the binge ended, she was deluged with guilt and disgust and overwhelmed with feelings of fatness, which led her to purge. Now, why do you think Jenny binged? Was it for nutritional sustenance? Comfort. Comfort, she said. Yes, yes. And where does this come from? I'll tell you one of the sources for this. Um, Anybody familiar with Pavlov's dogs? You know, Pavlov, the Russian um, behaviorist who did the experiment where he would feed the dogs and when he fed them, he would ring a bell. Every time he fed them, he rang a bell. This is called classic conditioning. So the ringing of the bell became associated with eating of the food. And then, after doing this for a while, he would ring the bell with no food anywhere around, and all the dogs would begin to salivate. All would be salivate. Why? Because the bell was associated with the food, and it caused without them, because dogs don't really think, just the sound of the bell would make them uh, anticipate food, and they start salivating. Classic conditioning. Well, in our when when an infant is being fed. What else is happening simultaneously in almost all circumstances? They're being cuddled, and they're being held, and they're being rocked, and they're being loved. So a lot of these young girls uh, in, find themselves in these situations where they feel unloved and unwanted and, and disconnected. When they binge, while they're eating, it's like ringing the bell. The, instead of salivation, they feel a sense of comfort. They feel a sense of love. It's a deep, unconscious association. But as soon as the binge is over, because it's not real love, it's not real emotional sustenance, it's not real nurturance, it's an illusion. Okay, it's like the dogs after the bell stops ringing, there's no food, their stomach's not full. Okay? So then they feel this sense of disgust and gross and they, and they, and they vomit. Why did Jenny think she was fat? Is a young lady at five foot four who weighs a hundred pounds fat? No. Why did she think she was fat then? Because she felt fat, and she believed what she felt. If she feels it, it must be true. Well, the question then is, why did she feel fat? Remember, James tells us that our feelings lead us into temptation. And I don't know if you know this or not, but I'll I'll tell you this. One feeling can masquerade as another feeling. Did you all know that? If you went to a, a masquerade ball, and you went and saw somebody wearing a George Bush or Barack Obama mask, and you looked over and said, hey, that looks like Barack Obama, would you then go, well then, it must be him. Or would you go, it looks like him, but I know it's not him. You see, one feeling when we feel, this in this particular case, this patient and many of my other patients with eating disorders feel fat. Objectively, are they fat? So it feels like fatness, but all of us know it's not fatness. There's no obesity here. It's not fatness. It has to be something else. The patient generally never knows this. We know it. You may feel it, but it's not. it. Yeah, it's got to be something else. So I have to teach them this. Hey, do you realize even though you're feeling fat, that feeling of fatness is like a mask. It's covering what's really behind it, something else. So tell me, what does it feel like to feel fat? And if they say, and this is what Jenny said, what does it feel like to feel fat? And I asked her, I feel bad, I feel worthless, I feel gross, I feel ugly. And I said, do you ever remember a time in your life when you felt bad, when you felt worthless after my father left? And these feelings that came when daddy left, of feeling bad and feeling gross and feeling worthless, weren't processed at age three. They just got buried. And they just hung back there and hung back there. And, and she didn't know how to deal with them. And so what happens, as often does, is she put up a different feeling she could do something about. Hey, I can do something about my weight. I will feel fat, because fat feels gross and ugly. And so she stopped eating in order to make the feelings go away. And as we uncovered the mask and we dealt with these other feelings instead... <coughs> Guess what? Then she was able to reprocess. Couldn't change history. Dad left. Dad left. Couldn't change history. History's history. But what could change is all the conclusions and beliefs that she drew about that history. And she was able to reprocess that and make healthier conclusions about what it meant. And her binging stopped. And her anger stopped. And the acting out stopped. And she start, finally started to have some peace with herself. Because what we believe has power over us power to heal or power to destroy. We have to analyze those things we believe and where they come from. So, back to our question. In this case, what does it mean to come to Jesus and his promise? You You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Coming to Jesus is more than simply every night having prayer and claiming a Bible promise. It's way more than that. Mm -hmm. It's actually applying to your life the truth because he is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the light and, you, and, and the life. And no one will come to the Father except through me. It's, it's actually applying to our lives mm-hmm. the very way He's designed us to function, mm-hmm. truthfully. Any questions about this? All right, we got some other stuff for the lesson. Let's go into Sunday's lesson. Did you find that helpful to go through that? Do you mind yes. just like a yes. comment? Because I think that people, when they're criticized, if they have a good sense of what's true and what's not true about that criticism, they can sort out what applies and what doesn't apply instead of just feeling bad. And I would, I agree. That we, we experience. Well, let me take it to another level. I agree. Truth about the criticism, what applies and what doesn't apply. Truth, truth about the criticizer. Mm-hmm. Okay? Uh, what are their motives in giving me the criticism? Mm-hmm. Are they loving me and wanting to build me up and help me? Are they trying to undermine me and hurt me? Uh, that truth needs to be incorporated too, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. 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 So, all right, Sunday's lesson, Elijah, during the famine, was fed by ravens slash angels and then uh, sent to the widow, and oil and flour miraculously arrived every day and never ran dry. We're familiar with the story, yes? Yes. Was this, we're talking about stress, was this a stressful time? Yes. Yes. A stressful time for Elijah? Stressful time for the widow and her son? Um, Why do you think the oil and flour appeared new every day? Why didn't God just perform a miracle to fill a pantry with three years' supply of oil and flour and a refrigerator and preservatives to keep it from spoiling? They had to rely on God. Did the daily provision put them in a place where it caused them to exercise every day their trust in God? Yes. So was God trying to increase their stress by... Having it run out every day. You I mean, let's glass half full, glass half empty. Oh no, we're out every day. We're out of flour and oil. We're out of flour and oil every day. Oh, we're out again. Could you see it that way? No. Well, that's happened every day, wasn't it? Every day we're out. But guess what? Every morning we got more. So, glass half full, glass half empty. Was it God trying to stress them to help them, uh, or trying to help them grow in their confidence and trust in Him? How about your bank account each month? We're out again. All the money's gone. All the bills have been paid, but the money's gone. We're We're empty again. Is this how we see it each month? Or do we see each month, hey, somehow the Lord's providing. Somehow the Lord provides. Yeah. The lesson notes that despite Elijah's successes, he had stress. Let's talk about some of the stress that Elijah had in his life. Would it be stressful to go in front of a royal court and confront the king to his face? Even if you're the prophet. Would it be stressful to confront 450 prophets of Baal in an open public contest? Yes. Would it be stressful to live as a fugitive? Would it be stressful to have the majority of your church members think you're a heretic and a troublemaker? (laughs) Would it be stressful to have the religious leaders in your community call you divisive? Did Elijah have these problems? Would it be stressful to have your church members refuse to worship with you? Did Elijah have all these problems? He did, didn't he? Yeah. Do we ever experience stress along these lines? Does the Bible, Bible prophecy tell us we will one day experience stress just like this, if not already? Malachi 4, 5, and 6. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Remember the 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 Elijah prophecy that before the Lord comes, and we know that this was fulfilled once with John the Baptist being the Elijah before the first coming, and we believe there's a second fulfillment of this that the Elijah is going to come again. The Elijah message you've heard this, Mm -hmm. the message of Elijah to prepare the world for Christ's second coming. What is the message? That is the Elijah message, that is to turn the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. What what does that just descriptively sound like? A message that does what? Reconciliation. Reconciliation, a message of reconciliation, which is a message of love, is it not? This is what Ellen White says, Christ's Object Lessons 4.15. It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. Christ Object Lessons 415. Does that sound like a message that reconciles? That brings people together? Does it sound like a a message that would have this effect of bringing people back into unity? Yes. And when we give this message, the message that Elijah gave, what might happen to how we're treated? A message that brings people... Will we experience stress like Elijah did to, to take this message forward? Yeah, Monday's lesson. Um, top paragraph in Monday's lesson. Read First 1 Kings eighteen forty. Uh, whether or not Elijah took part himself, this is a uh, First 1 Kings eighteen forty is where they killed the four hundred fifty prophets of Baal, and Elijah instructed them to do so. Uh, it says whether Elijah took part in the killing of hundreds of people, he was clearly in charge of the operation, and that must have been emotionally devastating experience. This was. This act was permitted by God as the only way to eradicate the idolatry, which included the sacrifice of children. Nevertheless, it surely must have taken an emotional toll on the prophet. Any any thoughts about that? What do you think about this form of revival and reformation? (laughs) <laughs> should we conduct ourselves in a similar way have a, have a, uh, a seminar here in Chattanooga and, uh, and we have a revival that uh, has two opposing views of God and after a miracle well, the one leader instructs the followers to kill the leaders of the other group here in Chattanooga what do you think about this form of revival how is doing such a thing different than some forms of Islam today does God need us to kill people who present the wrong view of him What impact does it have on the character to kill another human being? Does it cause a person to become more tender and compassionate? They're involved in killing 450 people. Or might it harden the heart? Would God prefer people to treat each other this way when we disagree over religious matters and practice a different religion? The lesson says this is the only way But it says the only way is what it says. Yeah. Was it the only way? Was it necessary for humans to kill? We have to think this through. The lesson wants us to take it at face value and not really reason or think. But let's reason and think. It says, the lesson says the act was permitted by God is the only way to eradicate idolatry. Did it eradicate idolatry? No. Whoa. First assumption. Okay. Did God know beforehand that killing the 450 prophets would not eradicate idolatry? Yeah. Well, did God even command it? We don't have a command, but most people assume since Elijah was the prophet. And uh, Ellen White uh, endorses the idea in her writings in Prophets and Kings that uh, it was uh, you know, at God's direction that this happened. Um, but the question, for what purpose? For what purpose? Was it to eradicate idolatry? Well, it didn't eradicate idolatry, did it? And God would have known that beforehand. Uh, this is not going to eradicate idolatry, so it must have been a different purpose. What was another purpose? Yes? Uh, possibly to save those who, uh, who weren't uh, mature enough yet to make a decision either way, and God has a plan, had a plan for their lives so that they wouldn't get mixed up in that. Well, think I, I, so, so the influence of killing the 450 prophets of Baal, it would have influenced the people who were there at least. In what direction? What kind of influence would it have? Would it have made them more likely to want to worship Baal that week? Fear. Less likely. Okay, showed God more powerful, incited what, what emotion? Fear. Fear, yeah. And what happens if we worship? I worship God based on threat of punishment, threat of I'll kill you if you don't do it my way. What happens to character? Yeah. Sullen submission. Rebel. White. Sullen submission breeds the character of a rebel. Of a rebel. Yeah. And what happened in Israel? Power, killed the prophetess of Baal, idolatry was not eradicated. At some point after some more demonstrations of power, eventually Israel stopped worshiping Baal. Right? And they kept the rule book. They followed the, the list of requirements. They, were, they even made a whole bunch of other ones, 450 Sabbath rules, to make sure we keep all the rules from now on. And so from the external appearances, when Christ came, we finally got a, a group of people doing the blueprint following the role, doing the, doing the script. And what did it show? Friends of God, if you, if you keep the rules, right? Or did it maybe show something else? Rather than demonstrating God's methods, is it perhaps demonstrating what... They thought they were friends of God, right? I mean, they had that perspective that they were friends of God. I mean, that's the community that we kind of live in. They thought they were friends of God. People that... Were the religious leaders of the day? Were they? No, but they thought they were. Maybe. You don't think they did? I'm not sure that they even thought they were. They might have thought they were just good servants. Yes. I think they they thought much more along the lines that they were um, God's authoritarian, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for, administrators in his government that they had been given authority to administer and carry out the rules and to punish those who disobeyed. I don't think they thought of themselves as friends. But back to my point. This issue with Elijah uh, and, and slaughtering the 450, 450 prophets of Baal, rather than a demonstration of God's methods, is it in perhaps just the opposite, a demonstration of what does not work. Methods that will not bring about what God wants. Thus, scriptures read, Zechariah 4.6, not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. Did the exercise of might and power result in a group of people who loved and trusted God? No. No, it didn't. It, it never will. If God could get what He wants in the hearts of His intelligent beings by exercising His might, how long would the rebellion have lasted? That long. Mm-hmm. Satan would have been going, boop, and everybody would have gone, we love you, God. Mm-hmm. That would have been it. It would have been over that quick. You cannot get love by threatening and using might and power, can you? No, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. First paragraph, Tuesday's lesson. Any questions about that? First paragraph, Tuesday's lesson. It says, um, sleep, eat, sleep again, eat again. This is the instructions for Elijah after his discouragement, after his confrontation, after the 450 prophets of Baal are slaughtered. Uh, he runs away discouraged and wanting to die. Suicidal. And he's given the instructions, sleep, eat, sleep again, eat again. And then engage in intense physical exercise, 40 days and 40 nights, from Mount Carmel to Mount Horeb. How interesting that proper sleep, exercise, and healthy diet are often prescribed to combat psychological stress. Any comments, questions, thoughts about that? This would hardly be the normal sleep, exercise, and healthy diet. (laughs) This would hardly be normal sleep, exercise, and healthy diet? Yeah. What would normal be? He had excessive exercise there, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He had a lot of exercise there. I don't know. what. Were we told what he was given to eat? jug of water and bread cake? We don't know. Was it manna? Or was it just, you know, something else? Do you think it was manna? doesn't say, does it? No no, no, no. no, it just says it was some cake. It'd be cool if it was manna. That'd explain a lot. <laughs> Wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, nutrition, hydration, rest, exercise, sleep, all are important in maintaining physical health and combating stress. When you exercise, your body reduces endorphins and enkephalins, um, which are actually central nervous system relaxing or mood-calming hormones. When you exercise, you uh, produce neurotrophic factors, which will cause uh, both blood vessels to expand. You get better oxygenation of the brain, but the neurons will make n- more neurons, and you'll connect neurons easier. You actually calm limbic system circuitry with exercise. Sleep deprivation impairs prefrontal cortex, where you, and this is where we process the, the emotions and, and, and work through problems and calm the emotions. And so sleep deprivation causes us to be impaired in our ability to have mood stable moods. So healthy, regular sleep helps us to have better prefrontal cortex function where we can process our emotions better. Also during uh, sleep stages, we have memory consolidation. We learn better if we have uh, normal sleep. And then we get certain hormones released that help us handle stress when we go through the normal sleep cycles. And when we shorten our sleep, we don't get those hormones and we don't handle stress as well. So multiple important physiological factors in um, exercise, sleep, and, of course, hydration and nutrition. These have anti-inflammatory properties to them. They decrease inflammation, those destructive uh, cytokines we talked about a couple weeks ago. Uh, other interventions that could be helpful in handling stress in our lives today, because we want, don't want to learn just what Elijah did in our lives. If we change the foods we eat, do you know you can reduce the amount of physical stress that your body has to deal with? Do you know certain foods cause inflammation? Trans fats are one of them. You eat trans fats, it increases the amount of inflammatory factors your body has to deal with. It increases the risk of obesity, heart attacks, strokes, um, damages endothelial linings, the linings of blood vessels, all kinds of things. The more animal products you eat in your diet, the more inflammatory factors for for a variety of reasons. The more whole food, natural foods, produce you eat, the more anti-inflammatory effects they have. Other things that you do to handle stress: eat right, sleep, exercise. What else? Schedule. In my studies, I found that people live longer and are healthier who have developed habits that are on a schedule. So, and you know, there's actually a lot of truth in what you're saying there. Routine, having a routine, gives predictability to life, so we don't have to actually stress about what am I going to do, where am I going to be. What, you know, this is one of the arguments that they give for, for some of the schools having uniforms. Kids don't have to stress about what they're going to wear. Just like, get up. You're going to wear your uniform. Don't have to think about it. No stress. And a schedule should include some work for other people. You're volunteering and things like this. Altruism. She just mentioned altruism. Giving of yourself to help others. Do you know that actually has an anti-inflammatory effect? It actually activates the love circuits of your brain, calms the fear circuits, and has a very healing. And the multiple studies show that people who are engaged in altruistic endeavors live longer and have less physical health problems. So true. The law of love, law of the Lord, yeah, it revives the soul. So healthy diet, exercise, sleep. What are the seven natural rem- remedies? Can you name them? Fresh air and sunshine. Sunshine Sunshine increases vitamin D, which we have a difficult time getting in the winter. Vitamin D is involved in um, uh, anti-viral and other, um, uh, uh, protecting your immune system, helping your immune system stay strong. This is why in the winter we're more subject to colds, because we're more subject to viral infections, because we're not getting enough vitamin D in the wintertime. So sunshine, pardon? Water. Sunshine actually has an anti-cancer effect. Did you know that? When you get regular sunshine, kicking up the vitamin D, and the way it affects the skin and the immune system, it actually helps fight uh, cancer as long as it's not excessive sunshine, which will be damaging. Uh, Hydration, when we're dehydrated, we don't think as well. We don't learn as well, and it affects our mood, so hydration is important. What else? Trust in God. Trust in God. Trust in God. What do we do to enhance our trust in God? Drinking water is such a hard thing for me. I can have a glass of water sitting beside me and... I had a patient this week came to see me uh, with anxiety problems, mood problems, not sleeping well, hasn't slept well in years, Taking the history, no, no illegal drug history, doesn't smoke, doesn't drink alcohol, um, drinks over three pots of coffee a day. <laughs> <laughs> over three pots of coffee a day. I'm not kidding. And I had to spend, uh, and, and, and the person says, look, I can drink a pot of coffee and go take a nap. I said, I bet you can. I said, once you've beaten your neurons to death like you've done, it's like you've already saturated all the receptors. You've already depleted all your ATPs. I mean, you're so. I said, what happens is you're, you're sleep, but you're not getting good sleep. You're not getting fitful sleep. You're not getting restful sleep, and it causes a chronic sense of fatigue and no energy. And of course, he had no energy, and he was had broken sleep, and, and so you know, uh, yeah. So people can do this. So well, avoiding. Well, what's the word? Abstemiousness. You've heard that word. Yeah. Yeah, it means to avoid everything that's harmful and use judiciously those things that are good. Because water, we just said, is good, but there are people who've died from water intoxication. They've drank so much water, it diluted their electrolytes, and they died from water intoxication. There are, uh sunlight is good, but you can actually burn yourself and get um, skin cancers and stuff from too much sunshine. Um, so, exercise is good. Some people get obsessive exercising to the point they uh, damage their bodies with exercise. So, yes, judiciously those things that are helpful. We didn't talk about the meditation, but there's good science that shows that daily meditation, focusing on some aspect of God's character of love, actually develops. We can measure with brain scans the, the anterior cingulate cortex where we experience love and calms the fear circuits. Ellen White said it would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour every day doing what? Contemplating the life of Christ, especially the, Christ. the closing scenes. And what are, the, what, are the, what are the closing scenes of Christ's life show us the most? But love in action, right? Okay, and so this is healing for us. Physiologically, we can document this. So meditation, um, getting out, in, oh, did you know that getting out in nature, science shows that if you live near a park, if you live near a park, you have less risk of depression. The further away from the de- park you live, the higher your risk of depression. That would be city dwellers. Obviously, those of us who live in the country, it's its not talking you have to live near a park if you live in the country. So in city dwellers who live near like Central Park, the further away from Central Park, the higher the risk of depression. Isn't that interesting? Um, friendships. How about healthy relationships? Do healthy relationships in a confidant? These studies show that children growing up in homes where they have a confidant, somebody they can talk to, have less mental health problems less drug abuse problems, less truancy problems, make better grades, and succeed at life better than those who don't have a confidant that they can talk to. So all these things. Which of these do we need to do more in our life? Anybody want to come up and take note? What I tell my, my patients who have young kids, that mothers, mothers, especially with young children, need to take time away from their kids. Do you understand why a mother needs to have time away from her children? Just to think. Well, partly, but partly to not think. Because when a mother has, especially small children, the mother can never turn off her radar. She has to always stay alert. What to what noise, something might fall, kids into this, kids into that. If she's home alone with those kids, she can't really just put her feet up and take a nap and turn off her brain, can she? Even if she's trying to nap, she can't really let herself nap. She has to stay partially alert. Isn't that true, moms? Yeah. And this is a psychological exhaustion over time. Moms need time away from their kids where they can put their feet up, turn the lights off, and not worry about anything. Calm, calm that amygdala, that stress center. So I tell my patients to find a, if you can't afford a, a babysitter, if you have no other relatives that can do babysitting for you, and take the kids one, one day a week. One day a week for eight hours. One day a week, eight hours minimum. You, you're not with those kids. If you can't find somebody, then you find another mother with young kids, and you take her kids one day a week, and she takes yours one day a week. And you trade out. Double your stress. One day, but you get your freedom and you get your time off. Okay? Um, she says double your stress, but you also double your goodness, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Thursday's lesson last two paragraphs says the following. John D. Rockefeller provided an example of how to survive stress by moving the focus from oneself to others. By 1879, his company, Standard Oil, handled about 90% of the refining in the United States. By the age of 50, he was the richest man alive. But in 1891, he had a nervous breakdown and was near death. However, he recovered from his illness in just a few months. How? Apart from the simple diet, rest, and exercise, he decided to give away his fortune and spent the remaining 40 years of his life as a philanthropist. Early in the 20th century, his personal fortune peaked at nearly $900 million. Now think that, $900 million in in 1900. average wage, $2 a day. $2 a day average wage back then. This is a lot of money. Okay. At that time of his death, his estate was valued at $26 million which means he didn't invest it badly. He gave most of it away. His donations did a lot of good, and you've, of course, heard of the Rockefeller Center and all these different things. Did a lot of good in the world. And as for him, he extended his life by another 50 years, living content to the age of 97. Now, I don't know that he extended his life to 97, but I understand what they mean, that he changed his stress diathesis. He was living under this constant stress, and people who have money that, that worry about their money, they, they live under stress constantly. Is the stock going up? Is the gold price going this way? Did I put it in this place? Is it, it's, it's like constantly stress, stress, stress about their money. He stopped stressing about it because, hey, I don't care. I'm giving it away. And then there was a blessing. I'm giving away not because um, I'm forced to, but because I want to. And he began to experience the joy in helping others. And this changed the whole stress diathesis where he actually experienced a great sense of well-being, which has physiological health consequences to it. How, even though we may not have $900 million in the bank, and if any of you do, well, see me afterwards. Um, um, and also Michael, if you have $900 million, you can see him afterwards too. Okay? okay, But most of us don't have those kinds of resources. How can we then participate in this process? Uh, do we have anything to give? What do we have that we can give? Our time. We all have the same amount of time each week. Same amount of time each week. How are we spending our time? You ever thought about that? How do you spend your time? Think about every minute. Yeah. <laughs> do we spend our time to help others? Giving? Do you experience joy when you do it, or do you do it because it's a duty? It's a responsibility. I know I'm supposed to. It's the right thing to do. It's what the Lord would have me do. It's what you know the church would have me do. It's, it's just, that's why I do it. There's joy in it. I just I just am supposed to. It's an obligation. If you do it that way, do you get a blessing from it? Actually, you don't. This is why the Bible says the Lord loves a cheerful. cheerful giver. He doesn't love a giver in the sense of what the blessing is talking about. Of course, he loves everybody. But um, he, the blessing of the Lord comes for those who are giving with a free and cheerful heart. If we do it begrudgingly, re- resentfully, we actually drive the stress circuits and we actually don't get all those benefits to us from doing it that way. And you balance that out just like the young mother needs to balance her time. You can give too much to the point of not having anything to give. Oh, that's right. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I do have some patients that are the overgivers, mm-hmm. and I have to tell them, Christ took time away. Did he not take time away? to his rejuvenation and so forth. And I give the example, a metaphor of a farmer. This is a great metaphor. Somebody's stuck in that and think they have to give everything all the time with never taking anything for themselves. Use the example of the farmer who has a farm and he cares about the starving peoples of the world and so he's going to raise crops and give all of his crops away to feed the people and he's so committed to it he won't take any for himself and won't even eat one morsel a day. How many people in the end will he feed? None. None. You see, if we don't take time to keep ourselves healthy, then we can't minister to anybody. And this is why Christ took time away, so that he would maintain his health so he could minister to others. And that taking time away, uh, and, so, and the devil tricks people into thinking, oh, if I take time for me, I'm being selfish. That's a trick of the devil, because if he can get you to believe that lie, then he can exhaust you to the point that you can't be in any good service to anybody, and people instead will be caring for you as you end up with physical exhaustion or mental exhaustion in a hospital somewhere where people are now caring for you because you've worn yourself out. Excellent point. Friday's lesson, and it talks the first paragraph, um, talking about utterly wearied, Elijah sat down to rest under a juniper tree, and sitting there, he requested for himself that he might die. A fugitive, far from the dwelling places of man, his spirits crushed by bitter disappointment, he desired never again to look upon the face of man. Into the experience of all, notice what I want you to hear this next portion, because this is, this is you and me, into the experience of all, there comes times of keen disappointment and utter discouragement. Days when sorrow is the portion, and it is hard to believe that God is still the kind benefactor of his earth-born children. Days when troubles harass the soul till death seems preferable to life. It is then that many lose their hold on God and are brought into the slavery of doubt, the bondage of unbelief, could we at such times discern with spiritual insight the meaning of God's providences? We should see angels seeking to save us from the enemy who's assaulting us. So. Notice seeking to save us from ourselves, striving to plant our feet upon the foundations more firm than the everlasting hills, and new faith, new life would spring into the being. Notice the greatest enemy, the greatest battle we have to fight is a battle with. Notice that when times of discouragement come, who rises up in our thoughts that we start to think about the most? Ourself. How could this happen to me? I don't deserve this. I've paid my tithe every week. I've done this. I've done that. I've helped them. I've done this. How, oh, how could this be? It's just not fair. Life isn't fair. I don't deserve to be treated this way. Have you, have you heard this? This is what, this is what fear and the ter- self rises up. Why is God doing this to me? Or, why is God doing it? Good, another one. Why is God doing this to me? Yes, Lisa. Well, didn't Elijah kind of put himself in the situation he was in? Did he have to run? He chose to run. Exactly, same point, yes. So he didn't, he, he made himself discouraged and fearful. And he ran based on what, what, what was the motivator? Fear. Fear. After what he just went through, he heard that Jezebel put out a, you know, death warrant for him, and he ran, and he ran. Now I am not gonna judge him. I think we all would have been in a similar situation. The whole nation was after the army is on the march with orders to kill him. Okay, imagine if right now we got the word and here comes uh here comes uh you know uh SWAT teams and FBI and National Guard and they're hunting for you with orders to shoot you on sight. Would you just be standing here or might you be heading for the hills too? I, I think it's a human reaction. We'd probably head for the hills. Wouldn't we? Yeah. So this idea though, saving us from ourselves, planting our feet on a foundation, this is a very um, very powerful promise because it's our feelings that, that, that trap us and discourage us and we can see beyond that and, re- and recognize, wait a minute, I'm feeling down, I'm feeling discouraged. Into the life of all, every one of us have had days like this. But there are angels right beside me trying to put me back on the right path. That's very encouraging, isn't it? Yeah. Any comments in, in closing or questions in closing? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have given us the truth about your kingdom of love. We thank you that you are always out to protect and save and restore and deliver us. And, and it's true that many times our feelings well up inside us and get us all confused and, and cause us to believe things about ourselves and about others and about you that are just completely false that causes us to be more discouraged. We pray that your spirit of truth will come. Enlighten our minds. May the truth convict our hearts. May you transform uh, the habit patterns of our thinking that we can have the habit patterns of your kingdom be established in our heart. That we can love you, love others, and love the truth. We pray in your holy name. Amen.